0: Hello everyone, you are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simon, a game study scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today I found something really wonderful in my mailbox. Normally when you come home after work, the best thing is when the mailbox is empty.
1: Yes. <laughs> no bills. <laughs> right. The alternative is, uh, is ouch, my wallet territory. Yeah. Ah,
0: finally not a court summon today. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, what I found is a pretty little sticker. And it says, I am studying pixels on there. And it has our mascot. I know people can't see it when I hold it in the camera. Maybe I'll post <laughs> a picture of it on, on the studying pixels Twitter and Instagram. Uh, this afternoon, because I find it really wonderful. It is the sticker that you get out there if you support us on Studying Pixels Plus. And uh, yeah, of course, we support our own patron. So yeah, uh, we we all got our stickers by now. And I think we're all pretty happy.
1: I'm very happy, yeah. I I got mine a little bit earlier than you did. Um, And it's uh, resting proudly on my laptop. So it's a, a very nice quality sticker. I think I've said this a number of times. But I'm I'm very excited because I, I'll get these stickers from all over the place. Um, and you never quite know what you're getting with quality. Sometimes it's like flimsy paper or it, you know, it, it ca- leaves some gross residue on whatever you stick it on. But this one, it's a nice sort of vinyl decal almost. It's very beautiful.
0: Are you a person who puts uh, like a sticker on their MacBook?
1: I am. I'm one of those. You only <laughs> live once, I guess. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I figure, you know, uh, with the amount of money that goes into a MacBook, I'll do whatever I please with it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> you you no you also get
0: these Apple stickers with it? where you can just put another Apple sticker next to the Apple logo. (laughs) I I do have some standards, yeah, some limits to my... (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I respect that. I respect people that uh, uh, express themselves creatively by plastering their laptop entirely with stickers. I always think of the resale value, and I always Mm. wonder, "Mm, then I have to scrape these stickers off, and it's probably going to leave a few scratches, so maybe I'm not going to do that. But hey, if a sticker is as pretty as this I am studying pixels sticker... Mm, then maybe I should do it this was like really an advertisement what we just did yes,
1: it could have very well been an advertisement it's our own product so we do our own we, you know it's not like uh it's not like we're coming across as shilling or anything like that it's a very nice sticker and what's more is that um it's not just the sticker you get when you sign up with studying pixels plus
0: of course because the main thing that you get are monthly bonus episodes we call them plus episodes and this month we talked about how the ESRB works, so the Entertainment Software Rating Board. How do they give out these video game ratings? So that's a plus episode. If you subscribe to us on Studying Pixels Plus, then it is already in your feed. And if you do not subscribe to us yet, but you want to, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out how to get on board. Our main story today is about the swastika taboo in Germany, because as many of you might figure, for many years the swastika, the symbol of the Nazi party, was not allowed to be displayed in video games at all. However, there were violations, there were also many discussions about the legitimacy of prohibiting the display of the swastika in video games, and eventually the regulation got altered, I think it was around 2019, uh, where swastikas are now allowed under certain conditions. And we're going to talk about what this taboo meant and how the current regulations affect what is possible now and in the future. And we're not doing that alone. We've got a colleague right here, a good colleague and friend of mine, Dr. Eugen Pfister. He's a cultural historian at the University of Arts in Bern and leads the project Horror Game Politics. He has extensively studied the representation of the Shoah as well as the swastika in video games and political mythology in general. I'm very glad that he's on right now. Hi, Eugen. Hi. So the swastika is an unconstitutional symbol in Germany. It is legally classified as an unconstitutional symbol. Now, from your perspective, what does that actually mean?
2: (laughs) An easy question to start with. Uh, It's not the only uh, unconstitutional symbol. There are also the uh, runes of the SS, of the Sturmstaffel, uh, and other symbols that are often forgotten as for example, also the portrait of uh, Adolf Hitler. So there's a lot, it's a whole plethora of things that are deeply engraved with uh NS symbolism, I would say, or that are uh, uh, icons of this unconstitu- unconstitutional NS regime. After the Second World War, the German society, and to a lesser degree, the Austrian society, um there was this idea of ni vida, never again. So uh, you had to rupture with the old regime. They had to show that they are trying something new, that we are trying something new, uh, a democratic society. So there had to be some sort of... um Historians are talking about damnatio memoria. It's uh, uh, it's Latin and means the, the damnation of a memory, of a specific memory. Uh, and these symbols were part of this. So I think it was a very important ritual too, to forbid these uh, symbols in in public space, we're always speaking about public space. So it was forbidden to use the swastika, for example, um, in front of a uh, in the header of a newspaper, for example, uh, or for some uh, political flags and so on. I think it was most of all. The act so forbid it was was also a very important symbol for the society. But of course, it was written down in the um, Strafgesetzbuch. In the and I'm missing the English word for it. What would be a good word? Uh, uh,
0: I think it's like the the punitive part of law. So there's not like it's not like the civil part, but the punitive part where the state goes against uh,
1: against crimes.
2: So there's a very specific uh, law about it. It is, it is actually a
1: punishable crime if you were to present these.
2: Yes, exactly. I. I I couldn't tell you how much, uh, days in prison or weeks or years in prison you can get, but it is, uh, definitely punishable. And it's, uh, it's not something, uh, th- this is really serious. If you're going, uh, before court with this, this is some serious stuff there. So that doesn't mean that you're going away with, uh, uh, some, uh, reprimand from the judge. But, uh, if you lose before court, there is some, uh, there will be some serious consequences of this.
0: Yeah. I mean, the, the idea is basically, of course, a lot of people were, profoundly traumatized and there's still people alive uh, who are profoundly traumatized and this is an entire I would say socio-political trauma Um, and of course you wanted to prevent the idealization of these symbols and by implementing such a regulation I think what is most effective about it is that you push Uh, actual Nazis and neo-Nazis that want to use this symbol, you push them out. You make it very clear, like, these symbols and this form of idealization does not have a place in our society.
2: Yeah, and and even more than that, it it was um, even stricter because it was also saying um, it's not legal, so you're really, you're not only, uh, being, uh, outside of the n- normal part of society of culture, but you're al- also outside of law, of the law, <laughs> if you're using these symbols. Uh, because I was talking about the symbolic act, that was very important also for the identity or for the common, I- uh, collective identity of, um, uh, Western Germany mostly, um, and later of Austria too. But it was also important to make a rupture that there can't be a continuity of some forms of um, bureaucracy, for example, of some forms of political uh, activities. They had really to be sure that there was a deep rupture that all of this uh, will end.
1: One of the things that happens often in America is that there will be a lot of talk about condemnation, but there's often not any forceful measure behind it. So it sounds to me that this as you were saying Ligen, was very important to say there there will be no branches from what happened because we're cutting this off and there are criminal penalties right
2: condemnation is, is a really important uh, idea here and also it maybe even um uh, a tougher word for it would be taboo it, it, be, it, it had to become a taboo which was a problem in fact because it, the taboo was so strict that it was uh, even impossible to talk about, uh, what happened for a long period of time that, um, Germans really spoke with their parents about the uh, NS regime was something that happened in the, uh, after 68. So there were many years where it was a, a taboo, uh, a damnatio memoria, a clear cut, um, which was, you know, in a way a very sane move because it helped to restart, to start anew. Uh, but it, uh, brought with it a lot, a lot of problems too.
0: Yeah, and one of these problems is that when video games came around, this was obviously a time where the swastika was already relatively common within, let's say, educational material and within arts. Um, I I guess we're going to talk about the comparison to films in a moment, but the earliest memory of it being significant within the context of video game discourse was Wolfenstein 3D to me, because that came out in 1992. It was a very iconic video game, somewhat of a you could say, very early form of the first-person shooter. And uh, in Wolfenstein 3D, you killed Nazis, you were fighting Hitler, and there were lots of swastikas all over the place, which is why it could not be released in Germany.
2: Yeah, um, uh, I have to correct you. Uh, I'm quite happy. Uh, not, I'm not happy that I can correct you. But this is one of the things <laughs> the, that... Uh, also, I thought it, it was the same, but the, uh, the thing is, it... it it is always a little bit more difficult if you're going into depth uh, uh, researching it. And I did this together with a colleague, with Andre Postert, because the thing is, it, it was indiziert, which means, I don't know what's the, um, what's really the good English word for it. It, it means put on the index of uh, media that can't be sold, especially to the youth.
1: Blacklist or restricted list?
2: Like a blacklist, yes, and it's, um what's it called, I think, Bundesstelle für... Um
0: Bundesstelle für... Back then it was Bundesstelle für Jugendgefährdende Schriften, and now it's... You, you know, for, I mean, yeah. for like, it's basically the goal of this institution is to protect the youth primarily. That's their yeah. main concern, and that's why they put games on their blacklists.
2: Really seldom normally. There are not many uh, games coming yeah. on this list, and uh, even less movies. But this was one that was uh, getting there because it was in the beginning of, um, of the contact between the uh, pu- uh, political public and games. And in the beginning, they didn't know how to react. Uh, but the f- interesting thing is it was put on the index, not because of the NS symbols, uh, the symbols of the Nazi regime, but because of the, um, the positive depiction of violence and the, uh, verherrlichung. no i missing the word. The glorification of, uh, vigilantism this was the the reason for putting in on the exit ex. but you uh, um, are you are also right because later the uh, oberlandesgericht frankfurt but this was in 1998 uh, i'm looking here at the paper the game was again uh before court and i think bec- uh, in it had to do something with uh the distribution by by Rechtsextreme, by uh, far right activists and they decided um that it also contained these verfassungsfeindliche anti-constitutional signs.
0: But I, I am remembering it correctly that back in the day when Wolfenstein uh, came out, or at least when I was when I became consciously aware of it, it was somewhat of a very controversial game. Like people were talking about it. Mm-hmm. That there was this game where you would shoot Nazis and where you could see actual like Nazi symbolism, and it was. Something that Adolf Hitler
2: you, in a robot suit. Yes, you would find <laughs> a robo Mac Hitler, Suzer, sorry.
0: exactly, and Blondie, and you couldn't, you couldn't just normally like purchase this game or order it.
2: Yeah, you always got it from a friend. You got like it from me. a
0: friend. Yes, <laughs> you got <laughs> it from a friend in school or something because everyone somehow had it. And yeah. to me, that was um, the Wolfenstein series was one of the instances where I first realized that there were symbols that would be uh, replaced. I don't know whether that was the case in Wolfenstein 3D or in Return to Castle Wolfenstein, which was uh, a bit later, but it was definitely an integral part of the series that they obviously relied on depicting Nazis and Nazi symbolism. Mm -hmm. And so in order to prevent this law applying to them and in order to sell their games to the very important, not the biggest, but very important German market, they took the swastika out and replaced it, for example, with the game logo, like the Wolfenstein logo. Everybody knew what it means, but it's not the swastika, so it's okay.
2: I'm not sure when in the series it began, because I took quite uh, a thorough look at the last two games, and I know the games in between. I played them, but it's a long time ago, so um, I don't know when this started. But um, what started quite early is a sort of awareness for the problem of the swastika in the game industry. Uh, And what happened, I mean... Totally in the beginning, um, for example, Indiana Clones and the Last Crusades, the, the game by Bennett was called Lucasfilm Games, um, the adventure game for the German market. Um, all the swastikas were blacked out, which was quite ugly. So you had this beautiful game, and then you had these uh, flags uh, of the NS regimes, and then there was this black uh, square in the middle of it. So this was, uh, in a way, the beginning um, of this... Um, awareness for the problem to use these symbols
1: i was going to say so because that's an interesting example of indiana jones the films have have swastikas in the yeah, that's and not a problem Nazi that's the funny pictures. thing it's that's uh, that's not a problem not at all the, it was just in the video game that's interesting
2: that's a very very important point because that's also core of the argument that it makes no sense anymore to have this sort of mm. uh taboo that is only true for video games because you had at the same time movies that could use it without a problem with movies uh, it was quite early that um there were some precedence um uh, cases i don't know if that's the right term but uh that showed it's okay to use this because mm. there is this beautiful word in the in the uh, law text uh social adequance clause I'm always slipping on this word and relect on every talk.
1: That's well, easy for you to say. <laughs>
2: <laughs> which means that um, it is forbidden to use the symbols only uh, with the exception of cases where it is adequate um, adequate, where it is okay to use them because it makes sense in the. Uh, uh, if it's for example for teaching materials or if it is for documentaries if it is for art also it was allowed to to use uh, symbols of the Nazi regime if it's in a clear um if it is clear that the the um that the statement of uh, the author is against the ns regime and this included all the movies and this included movies from uh, indiana clones up to iron sky Uh, so, and even some Nazi exploitation movies, I think was, it was allowed to use this, uh, with the only exceptions that it's not allowed to use the symbols in the posters for the movies, for the cinemas. But for games, this wasn't applied in the beginning because, and this has also to do with this large debate if video games can be art. Where there were many voices that said, uh, no, they can't, they can never be art, which I don't understand that. I mean, not every game is automatically art, but why is there a reason that they can't be art?
0: Let's take a step back before we, before we get there, because there are a couple of interesting phenomena uh, that happened along this way. And one of them, I feel, is that in the day when, you know, the swastika was still a symbol that would be blocked out of video games or a black box would be on top of it. Um, that was also a time where there would be games that contain the swastika, but these would often be games that are actual Nazi propaganda material, right? Like in the neo-Nazi scene, that w- mm-hmm. that would not be publicly sold, but would still be used as propaganda material. So, ironically, the condemnation in which it was implemented led to the fact that the swastika appeared in such games that actually glorified, let's say, the Shoah or you know, Nazi Germany.
2: The most infamous uh, of these is the KZ um, Manager, uh, a game everybody in the schoolyards has heard of. Uh, fortunately, not that many have also played it. And uh, in fact, I only know of one copy that is, in the, um, that is at, an, at an institution that is documenting uh, Nazi and uh, neo Nazi material. The DOW in Austria.
0: It is a game where you manage a concentration camp. Basically, it's a deeply cynical Nazi propaganda video game.
2: Basically, I think, uh, in fact, it's only text. So it was even at its time, it was very uh, outdated, and it's it's not, in fact, a working game. I think its idea was to to cause this outcry that, in fact, happened. So it. Uh, it was used to get a, a public public attention, and this worked quite well because there was even a, an article in the New York Times uh, in the beginning of the nineteen nineties.
0: It's sort of a, a pleasure also of breaking this taboo and and playing around with it because I mm. I remember up to such games like uh, South Park, which was only just a couple of years ago, right? They made it very explicit. Uh, there's some sequences in the game where you see the swastika and they have like a very obvious square on top of it. And they have like screens in between that appear. If you play South Park in Germany, Dan, for example, or to our international audience, you get like screens that that basically poke fun at you and that say like, this sequence is unfortunately too violent for you, for the German audience. Very sorry, but you can roughly imagine it like this, you know, and then they describe it. So there was also a very conscious engagement with this taboo at the time.
2: The interesting thing is, I think it's always a good thing uh, if you talk about this sort of taboo and if you engage it in a way, uh, because then there's a sort of discussion and then uh, you're always um, trying to find out, does this taboo make sense? Does it work? Uh, But what happened in video games is the contrary. And this, I think, was really problematic because uh, many, many publishers, international publishers, uh were conscious that it is difficult uh to sell these games in Germany. They were afraid of uh, afraid sorry um of an uh, of a public outcry, they were afraid of a shitstorm, uh they were afraid that they couldn't sell because if your game got on the index, uh then you had really a problem because you couldn't sell them anymore. Uh so you lost the whole German market. And what they did is not uh consciously uh Think about uh, the uh, Second World War and the NS regimes and the war crimes and the Holocaust. And uh, all that is, in fact, the ideological core of this uh, historical conflict. But it just cleaned the outside. They took away the swastika. They took away uh, portraits of Adolf Hitler. And they put there, for example, uh, the Balkan Balkenkreuz. I'm, I'm never knowing the, the English word for it. Uh, it's the... It's the cross that you see on German Panzers in World War II movies.
1: The ultimate problem of doing something like this is, as you say, Eugen, you're, you're just cleaning the outside of it, but not addressing the, mm-hmm. the ideological core of it. And so when you, when you do say, okay, well, these, these certain symbols need to be just blacked out or blocked off, then that becomes the focus of, of that Game, Right. Oh, that's a game where that symbol is blocked off or I I think it talks about these things, but we don't really know. The conversation isn't so much about the the topic itself, but around the kind of meta topic around it of of the censorship or, you know, the it's it's on this this restricted or blacklist or something or, you know, it, it can't be sold in Germany. So the point then stops becoming, well, what why are they using this symbol? What is the point of this story or this game? Right.
2: You're totally right. And th- the thing is, the law, uh, and the implementation of the law totally loses its sense mm. because the sense of it was, uh, to take away the, take away the normality. And it's, it's the word like normality, uh, uh of these symbols to take them out of your everyday, uh, experiences to make them something, um, awful, uh, and, uh, illegal. The idea was never that uh, you couldn't use the symbols because if you see the symbol somewhere, you become a Nazi. Nobody who wrote this law thought like this, but it was uh, Im- the law was implemented in this way. It was just taken away of every game, uh, and in fact, in a swastika in an Indiana clans, uh, Indiana Jones uh, movie game where we have Indiana Jones say Nazis, I hate Nazis will never be interesting for neo-Nazis. It's uh, this makes no sense whatsoever. And uh, this is also true for, for uh, the Wolfenstein games.
1: It would be hard to misconstrue Indiana Jones or Wolfenstein as pro-Nazi. Exactly. It's, yeah, right. The
0: thing is that by 2017, when Wolfenstein 2, The New Colossus, came out, I think that was kind of a breaking point of the debate. Because by then, it was the case that in the previous games, they had redacted, the swastika and the Nazi references, um, which was in itself quite absurd. But in the second game, um, they had you know Hitler actually appear in the game, but without a beard. Mm-hmm. I don't know how many people know that internationally, but they just removed his beard and they called him Heiler instead of Hitler, which is basically Healer. And they translated the word because they had to alter the story somehow, right? To not make it too clear that it's about uh, the uh, Nazi Germany. So they translated the term Jews as traitors. And that was very detrimental. It basically twisted the entire point of the game into into absurdity. I would say almost offensive absurdity.
2: I mean, I I talked with the translator uh, briefly um, because of a blog I, I wrote, or no, a colleague of mine wrote. Um, and the fact is, I know that this, oh, I know, uh, I, I believe him that this wasn't the motive. The motive was to, uh, because it wasn't, they weren't allowed to use the symbols, that they tried to make something that is in itself logical and uh, a working uh, world, uh, virtual, virtual world, that had to be something different, but where they assumed that everybody who sees the game also knows what it is really about. And I think the symbols aren't that much a problem. The big, big problem was to, uh, to take the clues out of the game and to call, uh, to call them traitors because this is something really fundamentally uh, different uh, to put uh, traitors into a concentration camps than to put a, a population based on uh, anti-Semitic and uh, crazy race uh, racism.
0: It did lead to the fact that um, it actively prevented an anti fascistic engagement with the subject and also prevented such things like engaging with uh, for example, the Shoah, the mass killings uh, that the Nazis committed, because those were also right, uh, like altered or in some way changed, where suddenly it would be traitors in the camps. It just it started to really backfire around the mid, you know, two thousand tens. I feel
2: uh, what we have uh, to keep in mind: the law itself was, uh, to my recollection, never uh, really applied. The, uh, the, uh, at paragraph 8 from the Strafgesetzbuch, but it was always uh, the interpretation of the law by the publishers. It was the, um, the fear of the publishers to be condemned that made them change their games. The, all these sort of um, corrections on the surface of these games, of this uh, yeah polishing and uh, taking away some symbols, was done uh, before the law came into action.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think that is very important to stress because that's what distinguishes it from censorship.
2: Yeah, there was never any censorship in this way because yeah. it, it could never happen because they always censored it. There was this preemptive uh, self censorship, in fact.
0: That was that was though at the same time um, very much based on the law because as long as it was in place as it was at it was the time,
2: anticipation of the law. You yes, you
0: had to you had to obey it. otherwise you would be you, your game would be on the blacklist, but um it led to this interesting situation I, I spoke to the um to the institution that manages the the blacklist and would enforce such a regulation the uh, we call it bpjm we mentioned it earlier in the conversation and basically what what came out of it at the end was this regulation as it stood at the time is basically so contestable that if a publisher or a developer were to basically legally fight it and say hey but video games should really be considered art and what we are doing here, Mm -hmm. that should definitely be considered as art or educational, then it would probably pass. But nobody made that move for a couple of years until, as you mentioned, Eugen, until games like uh, Attentat 1942 and Through the Darkest of Times started to appear, games where there was a conscious anti-fascistic engagement and they ran into the problem that they wanted to show the swastika, and they were very adamant of it. Like, we're not going to put any fantasy symbols in there because our game is about Nazis, and we want to, you know, we want to create a certain awareness of the problem and to make people aware of how it was at the time, and we can't do that. And I think that was, that to me felt like, got the stone rolling to rethink of whether we should apply a different perspective to video games. And that was where the Sozial-Addequanz-Clausel perfectly pronounced, (laughs) where that came into play. Yeah, the regulation of social (laughs) adequance. How is that determined, Eugen? How is that determined whether a game is socially adequate?
2: Uh, First of all, I'm I'm, I'm missing um, an education in law, to really uh, tell you. (laughs) (laughs) I could give you the contact of some colleagues who who worked in this, but uh, I would assume, um, from my experience as a historian, that in fact this is a part of law that can't really be applied because there is no clear definition there is not one um clear cut where you know okay until then it's okay and then i uh, know that's that's no longer okay because it always depends from the situation and it has always i think um uh, be- uh, decided on every case and this is what will happen in the future uh the US car will in every case decide is it now adequate or not and this depends of the people who are uh, citing these games uh, I know of one case, uh, um, I mean, for Through the Darkest of Times and Attentat uh, 1942 and I think uh, also for Project Lifeborn, this uh, Scandinavian game.
1: Mm, yeah. uh,
2: it, it was applied, but there is one game that is um, on driving tanks and having fun where it is not, uh, where it wasn't applied. Yeah. But I know that it isn't now. Uh, now they opened the the door and every game can use the swastika, but they're really... Uh, um, deciding from game to game in the moment maybe this kind of will change in the future uh, when this also always depends from uh from our culture and society what we are deeming appropriate and what not this changes over time of course
0: I remember the the big fear before the social the social adequacy would be determined was do we really want games where people can play Nazis or multiplayer yeah. games where people can play Nazis and I find it also very important to say that it's um uh, it's not a free pass. It's now possible for swastikas to be in video games, but they must abide to something that's at least they they must have some kind of uh, sincere engagement, whether that is something like Through the Darkest of Times, which is pretty educational and like researched, or whether it's uh, Wolfenstein, which is also I would say also has an educational purpose, but is definitely more of a like, you know, fun action game, but it's clearly antifascistic, so it can do that.
2: If you would ask me for my personal opinion, no, <laughs> no, uh, but also as an historian, I would say, uh, it should be applied, um, very open minded also to games like Call of Duty World War II, because I think you can't really make the difference between movies like, uh, Saving Private Ryan and games like, uh, Call of Duty World War II, especially, I mean, it's not the, the, and most intelligent of all games, but they really tried to incorporate the dark side of the war. And I think this is going in a good direction, um, from a perspective of, uh, memory culture, especially the problem was also with this, uh, with the law, with the, uh, for, uh with the interdiction to use the symbols was that it was an easy way out. You don't, it, you didn't have to, um, to think about it because it was easy. You just said, okay, no, we don't use the symbols. And then we're making every game we want to make. And it can be fun to play, um, play nazis and it can be fun to play the ss and so on and what should happen i think is never to to talk about censorship but also that you there is a, a demand for games on second world war apparently they're still working uh and what i would say is don't uh don't talk about into the uh, about censorship but um make these games more intelligent and uh, more intelligent is not a, uh, the, the, the right word, but make them more uh, relevant for memory culture and more uh, responsible too, which in a way all, already happens because what happened, for example, if, if, if I can give you one example of what happened in Germany with this sort of law was uh, Call of Duty World at War, which was also a game that tried to incorporate the darker side of the war. Uh, but then there was, of course, the multiplayer. And in the multiplayer, you had to be able to play also the Nazi side. And OK, there was no swastika. But if you won on the German side, you had a talk, um, a speech of Adolf Hitler in the background. Hinter uns liegt Deutschland, vor uns liegt Deutschland. So it was very uh, clearly, um, it was just a soundbite to give you, I don't know, an ambience or an atmosphere to be there. But this wasn't, I think, really problematic. Uh And here the taboo didn't work at all. Uh, even in Call of Duty World War Two, which I think is in many ways did many many things uh, better, but also there you had to have the multiplayer and uh, the de- uh, the developers they were aware that it's a little bit problematic now to play the Germans, but they said, uh, "Yeah, don't be afraid. You're not playing uh, Nazis. You're playing only soldiers," uh, which maybe makes sense if you're not if you're um, outside of Europe or outside of Germany and Austria, but here there's all uh, this. Uh, there was also this long academic discussion about the uh, war crimes of the Wehrmacht, of normal soldiers. So you can't no longer make this uh, this division between uh, the good German and the bad Nazi, because it was much, much more complicated. Uh,
1: Earlier, you kind of laughed at uh, your use of the word making it more intelligent. And I, I think that... Um Maybe, maybe a better way to phrase it would be more nuanced or more introspective, maybe? Yes, or...
2: that sounds much less arrogant, thank you.
1: <laughs> well, I think, uh, because, to your point, just something, something like that, where um, I do think that there is, uh, at least from the American perspective, sort of, people do tend to think of the division of the normal, quote, quote, normal German soldier versus the, the Nazi. And I think that if you if you just kind of take that for granted and don't go into that any further, that that obfuscates things and makes the discussion not as rich or not as important. It it takes the importance away from it. So I agree with you. I think that um, there's nothing wrong with with these symbols being in these games so long as the the thought goes into how are we talking about it and how are we presenting it? Um, because if you don't put that thought into it, I think it comes off as a little cheap.
2: It takes away any sense to to engage World War II in games, because um, if you take away uh, the the ideology, which was at the core of this uh, international conflict, I'm always giving uh, examples that it's you could also use Orcs and Hobbits or or the Empire and Rebels in Star Wars. It's just this... uh, the very good against the very bad and uh, history doesn't work like this and the idea of, of memory culture is also to not to forget everything and say yeah there there will be evil persons and we have to be aware of them but the danger is that every person can become evil that's a little bit uh, one of many many lessons of history and uh, yeah, as you said it's an easy way out not to engage this sort of uh, problematic discussion
0: so the assessment of the so, of social adequance on a case or social adequacy on a case by case basis is of course a little bit intransparent for the time being. We don't know how it will develop over time, but it is definitely for now a good way to encourage video games to actively think and reflect on what they actually want to say about the Second World War instead of just putting it in as a token.
2: I would agree, and I would also say I think I think the the big publishers, the triple. Um from triple uh, a games um they're always also looking for an easy way out uh, to um through the, the, their sales they're waiting for the small indie games uh to uh to try out what the fight the fight will be <laughs> adequate in the future to, yeah not a to fight the fight because but to see what what is okay <laughs>
1: <laughs> right right
0: test the waters i should yes, say Yes, exactly yeah thank you so very much Eugen, for this conversation
2: yeah, thank you both for the invitation. It was very interesting, and uh, I, I have to to, uh, to polish up my English, I think, a
1: bit. <laughs> it's perfectly fine. Don't worry about it. I, th- I think <laughs> maybe I should polish up my German. Maybe <laughs>
0: <laughs> that was Dr. Eugen Pfister on the Swastika taboo in video games in Germany. Thank you so very much again. Um, if you want to, dear listeners out there, you can find his article that he wrote with Martin Chigal titled The Führer's Facial Hair and Name Can Also Be Reinstated in the Virtual World, Taboos, Authenticity, and the Second World War in Digital Games, linked in our show notes. And while you check that out, we're going to go ahead and do some side questing. As you know, in our side quests, we used to scavenge the internet and bring interesting stories to the table just as much as we bring our own video game experience and this time around, I wanted to pick up on our last week's episode where we spoke about the Game Awards. And one thing that we have not really gone into was that, you know, Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss <laughs> from The Matrix, they suddenly appeared on the screen at the uh, Game Awards, and they announced not only a trailer for the upcoming Matrix film, The Matrix Resurrections, which comes out on December 23rd, 2022, 2021. Sorry, I'm already living in the next year. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm, I'm here (laughs) from the future to tell you Corona is unfortunately still around.
1: (laughs) It's still around, but there's a new Matrix (laughs) movie. there's a
0: new (laughs) Matrix movie. You can escape from the world now. But they also announced uh, The Matrix Awakens, which is, it was a little bit of an ominous announcement, free to download immediately on PlayStation 5. And so I did and found that very evening that it is, of course, a demo of the Unreal 5 engine. So um, this is something that's important to keep in mind. It's not a demo for an upcoming video game, and it doesn't play as such. It's,
1: um, it's an engine demo. I'm having uh, Final Fantasy VII Remake yeah. flashbacks from the PS3 era. <laughs> Not an actual yeah, game. Just demo. We just <laughs> wanted to see, you
0: know. But um, these, these yeah. engine demos, they are actually fairly common. Um, I think this one is probably more widely and broadly received because it was in such a big announcement. Um, and also because I think it's a very smart combination. Because, yeah, the Matrix is in itself all about how computer simulations can become indistinguishable from reality and new video game engines, they pretty much make the same promise. The promise is we, have, we present you with a toolkit to make uh, video games and game world simulations that harness uh, cutting edge technology to produce, well, to get as close as possible to photorealism.
1: So I have to ask, then, if uh, if that's the case, did The Matrix Awakens uh, have you, as they would say in The Matrix Yeah,
0: it did, I must say. I was really impressed. The thing is, uh, this uh, engine demo is split into three parts. Mm. First, you get an introduction, where Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss, uh, Neo and Trinity from The Matrix, they deliver a pretty stunningly presented take on the original idea of the matrix because they appear in the scenes of the original matrix film and they walk around in these scenes and they comment on stuff and they crack some jokes they transform from you know the current keanu reeves into his younger self when he played neo in the matrix and they uh transform in and out of their roles like it, speaking about from like the actor's perspective and from the character's perspective, then thousands of copies of them appear and move uh, like uh, in rendered in real time. And it's quite impressive. Like this is just the first part is like um, introduction to the idea of the Matrix and just a showcase on how close this Unreal 5 engine can get to photorealism. Because if you put mm. an image of Keanu Reeves next, to this virtually rendered version of Keanu Reeves, you can hardly distinguish them. There are indicators, but you have to look very closely to find out which one is the
1: digital render. Wow, that's uh, that's shockingly in line with, I think. The Yeah, Matrix. it is. Right. <laughs> what? A, it's almost a. It's very cool, but that's also almost a, an eerie prophecy fulfillment of the original <laughs>
0: films. <laughs> Well, of course, it also grounds you pretty neatly, because then in the second sequence, like, they transition into one another. Um, Neo and Trinity Mm -hmm. then drive, like, in in a car down a highway in the Matrix, and it's like this high-speed car chase, and you take over the role of a character who sits in the back seat, and uh, you get a gun thrown into your hand, and then your goal is you have to shoot the cars that are pursuing you, that are controlled by agents who try to basically jump on your car. And it's just a little bit like, um, it's it's not fancy. It's just like a tiny shooting gallery. You can't really manually aim that much. That's why it's always important to keep in mind, this is not so much about gameplay as it is about showing off the engine. And what it does is, Of course, you shoot at the cars, you shoot at the tires, the cars like crash, the cars explode. And at first, it might seem almost a little bit unspectacular until you realize that all of the things that are going on, including the entire traffic that is on the road, is all rendered in real time and is interactive. Like, this is not one of these classic, you know, linear sequences in a game where everything is static and you only got like. Uh, basically tiny video clips that you trigger by shooting the right things.
1: But this is all uh, rendered in real time. And that makes it seem quite impressive, I must say. It sounds it. I haven't I haven't looked into it myself, but I'm a big fan of the Matrix. And I'm also a big fan of um, the kind of meta commentary behind the Matrix. And this, I feel like, is such a perfect, and, and like I said, a little bit eerie way to show off a new photorealistic video game <laughs> engine. So it it sounds like we're in for some pretty cool games, if if it looks that good. It does, yeah. And the actual real treat I have yet to unravel.
0: Because the real treat is in the third part, which is the open world demo. Oh, cool. Mm, After this car chase sequence, it transitions um, into an open world where you can freely walk around as this character. I think her name is Io. Um, And you can, of course, like you walk around in this open city. It's a real-time rendered city. Uh, There are no real objectives. All you can do is you can go to specific points and then it gives you a tiny introduction where it's like, hey, uh, we also have this new feature that's like experimental lighting for nighttime scenes. So try to trigger it briefly. And then you can look at the city at night, for example. But you can also, you can at any point... Uh, go and get into a car and drive around. The driving controls terribly. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, they, they, they didn't make a racing game. They didn't, yeah. It's not a Race. racing game. But you can drive around a little bit. You can explore the whole city. You can fly at any point, basically just become a flying camera and uh, just fluently move throughout this entire city uh, where everything is dynamic. And I think that's what really impressed me. How much, you, how high you can move up the camera. And then you go all the way down onto the smallest level where you see every single, you know, passenger walking past. And uh, then you just casually stroll and pick up a car and drive around. So all of these things, the smooth transition of everything in this
1: real time rendered environment really impressed me. It sounds impressive. And it also, I, I'm excited to see what comes out of that because I feel like. And we've talked about this a little bit before with hardware, but it feels like something amazing will come out, like a, a piece of technology will come out, and um, it takes games a little while to kind of catch up to what's possible on that piece of technology. And so what excites me about what you just said, and the fact that this is tied in with the Matrix, is that I think it will prime people to think about the possibilities, and we may have some really exciting uh, things come out of this right out of the gate. I would hope so. Yeah, quite.
0: I think so too. I think
1: that if you are curious
0: about the technology, um, then The Matrix Awakens is actually very worthwhile because you can at any time go into the menu and you can trigger different views so that you can see like the different ele- graphical elements that were used to uh, build the the buildings and uh, the way in which the light reflects off of them and all these kind of you know. Oh, cool. Th- technical details that I'm not that well acquainted with. You can change the density of traffic and the weather and all these things fluently at any point just from the menu. Um, the only important thing to remember is if you download this and you jump into it, be aware that this is not a game. It's Don't expect anything to really play with apart from like the short car chase scene. And in this open world, there's nothing happening there. It's just... To show off what kind, how a world might look, how a vibrant city might look uh, in such an engine. And I think as such it is
1: very impressive. It sounds, and it, it's funny to me that um, Keanu Reeves has sort of fallen backwards into the role of um, exciting new video game ambassador for some reason. <laughs> For <laughs> some reason,
0: even though yeah. he actually, in an interview, I think he said that he doesn't play video games, right? But he became kind of an icon in video game culture.
1: Yes, just the, the eminently likable Keanu Reeves, you put him in any situation, evidently he's, he's uh, gung-ho about whatever you put him in.
0: Yeah, I'm just glad he's not a salesman, because if he were to ring at my door and try to sell me something, I'd probably buy it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Foregone conclusion, I'm afraid. <laughs> Number two, what have you brought? Um, some exciting news from uh, North America and the States. Um, so this uh, this happened very recently. Um, this is an article from Kotaku uh, written by Ethan Gock. Um, and it's about the first video game union that has formed in the United States. Um, so we've been talking a lot about um, Activision Blizzard in the past few weeks and it's exciting to hear that this story is kind of running parallel to that. Um, there's not a whole lot of information. It's just kind of an exciting turn of events, but there's a, a company called Vodio Games. Um, they made a, a turn-based pinball RPG called Beast Breaker. Okay. Um, which I know, it's, it, the description alone makes me want to play it. Um, <laughs> but they, they're, a, they're a smaller company and um evidently they're a very forward thinking company because um they kind of just decided that they would they want to unionize and that's how they they want their company to be um they want to interact with the the kind of higher ups at the company so when this um idea was pitched to um sort of the co-head of the studio the co-director Asher Volmer um he responded by saying We are a small young company, and I constantly encourage my coworkers to speak up and tell us how we can do better. So when they approached me and told me they were forming Vodio Workers United, it was a no-brainer to step back and proudly watch them do what no other game company in North America has. So this is an exciting thing. It seems to be, um, I guess, as mutual as unionization can be. Um, Just sort of a, hey, boss, we're going to unionize. And the boss says, okay, do what you got to do. Exciting stuff. And this is a small company, but um, it's happening at the same time as um, everything going on with Activision Blizzard and the ABK Workers Union or Workers Alliance, excuse me, um, that are taking the steps towards unionization. Um, I would imagine, not knowing too much about the process, that it's probably much more involved for ABK just because of the size of the company and the publicity and everything that's going on there. But I think that it's, um, this seems to be nothing but good news from my perspective at this time in video game history. I think so too. It definitely is. Because the thing is,
0: if you have the chance to unionize, then do it. You know, the thing is, it, it might be a little bit of a tangent, although it is, I think, almost like a comparable situation. I was, before I went into academia, I worked as a nurse. And during the course Mm. of my job training, uh, we had the hospital at which we worked to be privatized. Uh, So this process of privatization comes with some complications. Staff is going to get cut, salaries are lowered, the conditions get worse. And they did get worse. Oh my God, did they get worse? And (laughs) the thing was that we didn't quite know what to do because as nurses... You barely have any proper form of representation. Nurse, the profession of nurses and healthcare workers, those are the professions that are the least likely to strike because they they feel a kind of direct sense of care and responsibility for their patients. Naturally so. And how could you possibly strike and leave the patient on their own when they can't take care of themselves? Right. But the thing is, it only works when you cooperate and stick together. So the first thing that back in the day, what we all did is We all signed up to join a union as a signal to the company. So just that they are aware, Mm. whatever they are doing, we're watching them closely and we're going to protest if they go against the interests of ours and the interests of the patients.
1: So I think if you have the opportunity to unionize, then do it. It, it, Yeah, it's, it's um, it's an important way to make sure that the employees' voices are heard you know, different, different companies have different, um, ways that they interact with their employees. Um, but a union does kind of confirm that here is a group, a union of these employees and they're coming together and every decision they make is voted on and they kind of speak as one, right? So it's in, in a industry, especially as volatile as we're finding out as the video game industry, um, this is really exciting news for people who put a lot of hard work and dedication into their career. Um, And I think it sets them up for a a more protected future. And the exciting thing here is that um, as this story is kind of coming out, the, um, the workers at uh, um, the ABK workers Alliance, like I mentioned, the Activision Blizzard folks, they're taking the steps, but also um, companies like, uh, Uh, Ubisoft are getting some, you know, things are kind of roiling over there too. And so I think the more stories like this come out, the more uh, this idea gets kind of normalized in the public eye. And I think the easier these workers, um, an easier time they'll have kind of getting all of this done. That's my hope anyway.
0: Yeah, I think you're very much on point also by saying that it gets more normalized in the public eye. It even gets any attention in the public eye because I just remember that um, years ago, there was like, at least from my naive perspective, there was not really much concern with, you know, who makes these games. It was all about the games and maybe the company brand name and so on. But I feel like in recent years, this black box, um, it has has popped open. And now it's at all kinds of opportunities. We talk about the conditions in the video game industry. We talk about workers' rights. We talk about harassment and marginalization. And we can't just simply uh, shut that door uh, again, because now we have that insight. And now it's all about, you know, helping people and uh, giving them the opportunity to be empowered and to speak up and to,
1: yeah, Unionize. Good on you, video games. I'm excited to follow that story and see how things progress. Um, and I, I imagine we're going to be seeing more Kotaku articles about different companies coming up in the next few months. It seems to be a pattern, right? It's
0: like every two weeks mm. uh, we have a Kotaku article about some kind of working condition
1: thing in the video game industry <laughs> on our <that> show. <laughs> yep. Well, I think uh, until until they no longer have to talk about it, it's good to be talked about. Very much. Yes. I've also got
0: a, a story that's a little bit related to that matter. Number three, this is not Kotaku, though. This is actually Eurogamer Tom Phillips, who writes, "Forespoken developer raises eyebrows for describing game's black protagonist as having, quote, hip-hoppy walk, end quote. Mm. So forespoken. this is one of the games that um, seemed really amazing at the Game Awards. It is a, a game about a young black woman who lives in an urban contemporary city yet gets kind of sucked into a fantastic world, if I understand this correctly. And they did this preview session for the game Forspoken where Tom Keegan, the performance director, so he like oversees the process of motion capturing and works with the actors. He said that the character Frey, which is the protagonist, that she has this kind of hip-hoppy kind of walk. In full, just for the context, he said the following things. These are two longer quotes. Quote, She's a transactional New Yorker. She's an orphan. She's very angry. And her purpose in life is really to figure out the puzzle of who she is. When you become 21, something happens where you really want your own identity. And when she finds herself going to a portal to this land, Athia, it's like she is confronted by that. She's confronted by, who am I? And this culture clash that's set up between her character Frey and this land is wonderful. It's really fun. A tiny ellipsis here. One thing we really worked on with Ella was the walk, the character's walk. She has this kind of hip-hoppy kind of walk. And Ella herself in brackets, this is the actress, he, uh, Ella herself is very athletic. Performance capture is very much a physical medium as well as a vocal medium. And so in addition to finding the walk for every character and Ella Ella's character, it was finding the voices for those characters, end quote. That's what he said in full. I just wanted to read out the full and proper quote so that there are no misrepresentations of what he actually said. And... Uh, Then he got a little bit under fire for, you know, racist insinuations for what he said, upon which Square Enix uh, provided a statement to Eurogamer, which reads in part as follows, quote, We worked closely with a number of consultants from BIPOC backgrounds to help portray Frey's character and tell the story from her perspective. Our supporting cast also features several women of color. So we're incredibly excited for players to experience the full story of Forspoken
1: next year. End "Quote, boy, it's uh, th- this is one of those things where um, I'm glad that you read all of the context for the mm, quote mm.
2: Um,
1: because I think it. If you if you just heard that quote in isolation, you could go in a million different directions. And that one, I definitely think there's it's it's so difficult to. To kind of choose your language, I think, when you're talking about something like this, and I wonder, could it? I think it could have been phrased a little bit better. But it's—I uh, don't—I—I I don't know. D- does this deserve to be under fire for this? If this is about a a, a 21-year-old person from New York. This is something that I've been wondering too. I read
0: these lines that he said several times, and I watched like uh, I think there was a video clip of this preview session where he said that. Mm. I think I'm sorry if this offends anyone, but I think it's an exaggeration to frame this as racism it might be it that seems that way you can you can call me out and say like this is white privilege speaking here because uh, you know I, I can't speak on the we, matter
1: <laughs> yeah we should we should preface this by saying yes we understand we understand
0: <laughs> so okay f- fair enough but the thing is that I think it's I find it a bit tough because yes okay hip-hop kind of walk I get why some people take umbrage uh, with that although I'm not sure whether a hip y kind of walk is necessarily something that's decisively black Uh, i i just struggle with the fact that this is a game that self-evidently features a black protagonist and several Mm. black characters it doesn't appear as so far at least it doesn't appear that the game specifically engages with the issue with issues of racism or you know what it means to be a black woman in new york or something we don't know Exactly, whether it's going to go into that, it might. For what it's worth, it definitely might. It seems like they are aware of this and they work with consultants. I can definitely believe that. I just find it kind of sad that it it seems to me at least to be blown out of proportion. Those remarks do not, uh, shouldn't lead, uh,
1: bring them into any kind of profound trouble or something of the sort. Well, and I think, uh, you know, I don't... uh, I think any conversation like this um, is couched in. I don't know what it what's in this person's heart, so I I don't know exactly how they feel about any particular thing. I will say though, um, the second part of the quote where you were talking about where the the hip hoppy kind of walk uh, line actually shows up, um, that seems to be more about the the nature of performance capture or uh, you know getting getting the physical performance from somebody, um, and. It's, it strikes me that he has a lot of admiration for this actress. Um, so I, I do think that again, hip hoppy, you could have a whole conversation about how that's coded in certain ways and there's a lot of insinuations, but, um, it doesn't seem to me that he's parading this as, um, anything kind of racist or, you know, on the, on the negative side of things. Yeah,
0: I think so too. I think... Someone who does who directs performance capturing has to be profoundly obsessed with the way people move. Yeah. And to work with uh, a, a great actor or actress on developing a character and working on, you know, the body that they have, the, the physique that they bring to the table and how to use that in order to imbue this character with a certain individuality is something... Uh, that must be a wonderful experience. So could he have chosen a little bit, like his words are maybe a bit unfortunate, just mildly unfortunate, but I also think we have to keep in mind, you know, we're on the internet. And the thing is that if the, if something like that would happen in a different context, then it could very well be possible uh, that Someone would just say like, ah, oh, maybe you want to rephrase that or something. Or what do you mean by that? You know, just ask a question yeah. and then probably would be resolved pretty quickly. But since we're on the internet and we're on Twitter and we're, you know, in a kind of scrutinize you know, everything where things is very much closely scrutinized, and then it's written down and written down, it always has a different effect than something that's just, you know, briefly spoken fleetingly.
1: It just could become a much bigger issue than it actually, I th- I think, should be. I'll tell you the phrase in that that actually gets me really excited about this character is transactional New Yorker. <laughs> yes, I never heard that before. No, I'm not sure exactly that. <laughs> that gives me a little more pause. I imagine I don't know what transactional means in that sense, but it sounds like I mean we we talked about briefly the trailer at the Game Awards, and it seems like a really interesting story, and it it reminds me of um uh there's a a Japanese trope. Um, in anime and video games. I think it's Isekai, uh, where it's like you're transported to a different world. And so it's, I think, the perfect setting for, a, uh, the perfect setup for a video game to take somebody who, all right, they may seem normal in our world, but then you bring them over to a completely fantastical world and being a fish out of water, they have to come to terms with themselves, which is, it seems to me, what he just explained in that quote is that here's a very particular person from a very particular place and they're going to a very different place and to try to find out who they are it sounds interesting to me
0: it does sound interesting to me as well we'll keep an eye open for that and uh, dear listeners you should definitely keep an eye open for our next week's
1: christmas special that will be next week already right christmas is fast approaching. Yes, it is yeah it, it, this year has flown by and we're already a week out <laughs> amazing well that's gonna be really cool we're gonna bring 10 predictions to the table
0: 10 predictions of what is going to happen in 2022 and dan and me we're gonna play a little game to see who gets the most predictions right Uh, so thank you so very much for listening If you want to support us and get this beautiful I am studying pixels sticker and put it on your on your MacBook or wherever, uh, then please go to studyingpixels.com slash plus. Also, it would be very helpful if you leave us an Apple podcasts review. It just helps us to not get drowned out by the algorithm. You can submit your thoughts and questions at any point to podcast at studyingpixels.com. And then we'll see each other next week for our tiny Christmas special. See you then. Yes, we'll see you then.